Before we pray, if you've been watching the news this week, you know about the wildfires on Maui. Our Savior, Ea, totally different island. The fires we had here were nothing. But our brothers and sisters on the island of Maui are really going through a tough time. We've been working through our local church there. By the way, um, please pray. But as you well know, faith and, and prayers without other things really is just words. If all you can do is pray, then pray. And, and we are grateful for your prayers. But if God has endowed you with anything, a, a gift of any sort that could make a difference, please consider making a gift. And by the way, if, if you're in an area that is hit by a disaster, then give there. And, and by the way, if you're watching this days, weeks, months, even years after this, and, and you have not even heard anything about the Maui wildfires, I have no doubt that there is a disaster going on wherever and whenever you are that, well, needs you to do whatever it is that God has endowed you to do. We are here to be an answer to prayer. And that's why you'll hear, never hear me say, I want your money. What you will hear me say is, I want you to take who you are and all that God has gifted you with and make a difference in the world. You're the only one that knows what that means. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just as Peter said, save us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it turns out that I have enough fear, anxiety, worry, and regret so that none of you ever needs to go through any of those things. You guys can just sleep blissfully through the night, get up every morning, go for a walk, listen to the birds, because it turns out what I go through is enough for all of us. If only that were possible, huh? I was listening to a blinkless summary of a book the other day, and the author stated that our accelerated pulse and the knots in our stomach over such things that we rarely have control over are really just acting out an unresolved drama from our past. A memory from childhood or school, failed relationship, dream shattered, a loss that we never really recovered from. Our mind stores tiny bits of our past, and then at just the wrong moment, it releases all that fear and anxiety without specifically telling us that we're really just remembering something from a long time ago and we really don't need to be afraid of what's happening right now. There are those who say we must confront our fears and anxieties and hit them head on. If we see fear coming, we put our boots on, roll up our sleeves and dare it to make us try to cry again. Or if we think they're going to try to sneak up on us, we, we find a place where our back is to the wall and we can see all the doors and windows to eliminate any possibility of, of a surprise. Counselors and psychologists offer it a cost to help us talk through our issues. Al alcohol and other prescriptions claim that they'll help us dull the pain. Friends are really good at keeping us distracted and used improperly. As Karl Marx said, religion can become the opiate of the people. If you want to walk on water, you first have to get out of the boat. Um, even if you aren't good at science, you understand cohesive water tension gives way at a certain point. So even if you have been on a diet for the last several weeks, and by the way, you're looking marvelous, um, well, you're going to still wind up sinking. Now, all those 60s gurus would just tell you, be the water. Or don't think about sinking. Think positive thoughts. But I don't know about you, but the moment I say I'm not going to think about something, that's all I can think about. Now, why Peter, you know, chose walking out on the water as the way to prove that it was Jesus is a mystery that only he can explain. 
if I'd been there, you know, I would have said, hey, Jesus, do you remember that night in Bethsaida when we had Christmas dinner? So just to prove it to you, what did we all have to eat? Now, the truth is, it's a trick question. First of all, there was no such thing as Christmas back then. Secondly, we never had a meal in Bethsaida, and we're pretty sure that ghosts can't read minds. So if he answers me, I'd know it was really Jesus. Peter decides on a different tack. And when Jesus holds out his hand, Peter steps out of the boat and actually starts to walk toward Jesus. Scripture indicates that just for a second, like Wiley Coyote of Roadrunner fame, Peter actually was walking on the water. Then just like the cartoon, there's that moment of recognition as cohesive water tension fails. Peter's eyes go wild, and he starts to sink. Now, he didn't sink rapidly because the Bible clearly says he started to sink, and, and it means a, 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 protract, a protracted process. Peter then does what most of us would do in such a situation, cries out, Lord, save me. You know my rants on the stories in the Bible and stories in life where we make fun of somebody who failed. We really need to stop making fun of people who fail. Doubting Thomas, James, and John wanting to call down fire from heaven, Mary and Martha scolding Jesus for showing up late, Peter going for a swim because he didn't have enough faith. We love to point out how we would have done much better. But you know, Peter got out of the boat more than the other 11 disciples can say. Sometimes it's better to have tried and failed than to not have tried at all. We cannot allow fear of failure to keep us from doing what we know needs to be done. Now, whether or not Peter would have been able to do the moonwalk or chicken dance on the water if we'd waited a few years and his faith was better developed, uh, we'll never know. Neither, to be honest, is it important. What matters is we get to see what happens when Peter gets squeezed. You know my toothpaste tube test. You can say whatever you want on the outside of the tube, but when you squeeze it, that's when you find out what's really inside. Now, maybe Peter didn't have enough faith to walk on water right then, but he had enough faith to trust that Jesus would and could save him. And I'll be honest, I think that's the most important question and answer that can be provided in this text. See, the word faith often quickly attaches itself to our plans, our ambitions, and our expectations. We, we twist it to justify what we want. And then we think, by the way, that we deserve it because we're so faithful. If I have enough faith, I'm not going to get sick. If I have enough faith, I'm going to be healed. If I have enough faith, I'm going to have everything I want because God is going to reward me because he knows what a great person I am. Because I have enough faith. I'm going to be able to step out of the water and walk right over to Jesus. If that was really the purpose and meaning of the text, well, I would dam up Kalawau Stream, which runs right behind the church. I'd give all of you a big pep talk. I like the little engine that could. I'd get you chanting, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And we'd all go out and we would walk on the water. Okay, almost all of us, we'd leave one or two behind because, let's face it, this is something that we would want to be recorded so that we could become viral on TikTok and on uh, Instagram and on Facebook. Anyone who sinks, immediately deemed unworthy. Uh, those, by the way, who could do the craziest dance moves on top of the water, immediately elected to leadership because it's obvious they are people of great faith. So what do you think? Anybody up for that? Come on over. We'll, we'll, we'll set it up. For those of you who are having a few doubts, I'll get you some water wings just in case things don't quite go the way you hope they would. 
You know, Lutherans as a whole are not we-can-do-it kind of people, unless you're talking about drinking the most coffee, um, eating the most jello, or feeling more guilty than everybody else. Those we kind of got a corner on. If anything, we aren't Peter in the boat or Peter stepping outside the boat. We, we identify more with Peter beginning to sink, the Peter who cries out, Lord, save us. If, if, if you watch these sermons thinking, I'm going to help you become more confident, more bold, more holy, you're going to be disappointed because the only thing that I hope to help you with is for you to become more reliant on Jesus. Oh, oh, not to the point where you stay home in your pajamas and wait for Jesus to show up to fix you breakfast and clean your house, but rather to rely on Jesus to help you figure out how this thing called life works. And when life doesn't work, how you might be able to survive until either you go to heaven or whatever is broken gets fixed or you learn how to live with it. See, we don't claim the gospel story as our own. I mean, if we think God is going to write us into the story as the heroes who obviously were going to have enough faith to walk on water uh, just so we can taunt those who don't have as much faith as we do, we need to go back to Sunday school and listen to all those stories again. Instead, the story claims us. It wraps us in a storm, wind and waves, a boat that's just out of reach, and a Jesus who's standing near us on the water, and his hand is outstretched. But what are we going to do? Do we try to swim back to the boat? Do we try to swim toward Jesus? Do we hold our breath? Or do we just cry out, Lord, save me? And if we choose the final option, by the way, what are we actually expecting Jesus to do? Pastors, sometimes intentionally, sometimes uh, unintentionally, they often come across as saying, you know, you, meaning us, the church, you should have enough faith to walk on water. You should have enough faith to always keep focused on Jesus. You should be able to make your way to Jesus. You should have all this because, let's face it, if you truly have faith, then everything is possible. That takes me back to my Baptist days. I almost want to say, can I get an Amen. And in a world without sin, that not only would be possible, but it would be expected and and possible for all of us. But we don't live in a world without sin. See, the people in this story, the ones in the boat, the ones who stepped out on the water, the one, by the way, that that was on the shore watching this whole thing, they're all the same. And in fact, all of us are the same, no matter when and where we live. We are all the ones to whom Jesus cries out, it's I, do not be afraid. If there's any humor in the story, it's the fact that it is Peter who asked to go out and walk on the water. Uh, Peter, which in Greek is Petros, and it's translated rock. And just about anyone knows the only thing rocks do in water is sink. And yet there he is asking Jesus for the ability to walk on the water. Walk on the water. Maybe, maybe Peter actually has more faith than we give him credit for. Peter was always known for speaking first and thinking later. Some of us can identify with that. I mean, to be honest, it's a recurring theme in the Bible. Elijah's victory at Mount Carmel, followed by him hiding in the cave. Uh, Peter promising Jesus, I will die with you, and then running away and denying him three times while the rooster crows. Abraham telling God, I totally trust you, and then going around telling everybody that uh, Sarah is his sister and not his wife so that nothing happens to him. Gideon doing the whole wet fleece, dry ground thing, but then having second thoughts and going, okay, God, can you like reverse that? I just really want to make sure I got this right. We make a powerful declaration of faith. We convince ourselves that we're in control. We boldly step out of the boat, and then we hesitate and start to sink. 
Now, way back in the book of Genesis, and, and Job kind of echoes this in our Old Testament lesson, the third verse declares the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The water was dark. It was deep. It was endless. Then God separated the waters, pushing some of it below to make oceans and some of it to become rivers and lakes and then raising up valleys and, and, and mountains and beaches in between. In ancient cosmology, all of life hung suspended between the waters. The waters were mysterious. They were uncontrollable. And they were very, very dangerous. One Sunday I was reading the lesson from the book of Revelation, the, the one where it says, then I created a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and, and then comes the, the, the problem part. And it says, and the sea no longer existed. On the way out of church, uh, one of our members shook my hand, and he says, so pastor, after that lesson, I'm not sure I want to go to heaven. You know how much I love my boat, and you know how much I love fishing. And... Uh, I had to admit, I love the water. I did some research. Turns out most theologians agree that this actually has nothing to do with the water disappearing. In other words, no longer being a sea doesn't mean there's not water. You see, it's saying that there's no longer going to be any fear of the storms that rage or the ocean claiming the souls of sailors as well as all those that, that get claimed when, when the, well, the storms rage and the waves crash. See, the volatility and the mystery of the sea was associated with the chaotic, the demonic, the unknown, the completely and totally uncontrollable. Leviathan, the giant fish, lived there. Stories of Noah's flood where the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and suddenly everything is underwater and the only thing saved is some animals and a very few number of people. Water was and is a powerful force that can in a moment give life and in the next, take it away. And, and so when Revelation says there were no more seas, it, it simply meant that people no longer had to be afraid because they were no longer stuck in this cradle between all the water that, that God had created a perfect place for them to dwell forever in safety. I know we all want to ask why Jesus was out walking on the water. I mean, he left late, he was catching up, but surely there was another boat or he could have walked around on the shore. But if you listen to the words, it says, he headed to them. Some say he was showing off. Others think it was just a happenstance. They bumped into each other. After all, the lake is huge. But most of us know when God wants to teach someone a lesson, he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we actually get the lesson. Now, notice Jesus doesn't tell the disciples there is no such thing as ghosts. He doesn't get mad at them for being sissies. He gently but firmly proclaims, I'm here. You don't need to be afraid. He's present, even in the chaos, the storms the fires, the mire, the pain. And there is the invitation, not so much for us to get out of the boat and walk on water, as cool as that would be, but for us to also be present in the chaos and the storms of life, to take a deep breath and realize that we are not alone, that we can trust Jesus to find us no matter where we are. And even though we can't see how it's all going to end, he can, which is why we need him. And by the way, when we become the non-anxious presence in those moments, it helps everybody around us also take a deep breath and become less anxious. I am a person of little faith. I worry about the wind and the waves. Last week, I was also worried about the flames. And Jesus says, though, that even a little faith, the size of a mustard seed, is enough to uproot a mountain and send it into the wild sea. 
And this becomes very, very important for us to know. Very important for us in a world where we live. So back to Peter the Rock. You and I was a kid. We had this thing going. It was called the Pet Rock. Um, it was a fad because rocks were totally faithful. You didn't have to feed them. didn't have to take them out to go to the bathroom at 2 in the morning. Um, you didn't have to worry about them running away. You couldn't kill it. And whenever you sat it down, it was waiting for you whenever you came back to get it. But when rocks get rolling in the wrong direction, watch out, because they are very, very hard to stop. On the day of the storm and the failed walking on the water experience, in fact, long before and actually long after that, there was a lot of talk going around about who Jesus was and who he wasn't. Jesus, by the way, wasn't a lot of help answering this question, often speaking cryptically, unless you count him raising the dead and healing the sick and, yeah, walking on water. Peter's was the one who said without hesitation one day, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Kudos all around, Peter. You got the right answer. It's another one of those jump first and then look where you're now falling moments. But well, Jesus said, my father released this to you, so good job. But just minutes later, just minutes later, Jesus calls him Satan because the rock started rolling in the wrong direction. Wild swings of faith. But you know, Jesus never wavered, and he didn't give up on Peter. I think most of us have a moment or two where we wonder if all this faith and heaven and church stuff is real. We keep hoping that Jesus will do something that will get rid of any fears or doubts that we might have about who he really is. Oh, we need more than King Herod's request for birthday party tricks as Jesus is about to be crucified, and certainly more than King Ahaz's refusal to ask God for any sign because God said, you know, name it. I'll do whatever it takes to prove who I am. What would it take to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt for you? What would you need to know that Jesus really was the Christ, the Son of the living God, so that you would never, ever, ever have a single doubt again? Would it be enough, by the way, for you to say, hey, Jesus, let me walk on the water? Because I know me. Once I walked on the water, I'd say, hey, Jesus, I want to fly like a bird. And then I'd have this endless list of all the things that, that I needed in order for Jesus to prove who he was. If anything, what gives us hope in this passage is that Jesus sees us in our worst moments, like when we stay in the boat because we're afraid, or when we step out of the boat and panic, or when we never get in the boat in the first place. And he still reaches out to save us. By the way, Peter didn't need to say anything. And Jesus wasn't waiting for him to say the magic word first before, you know, he reached out to save him. He wasn't saying, I, I need to hear the magic word. What's the magic? No, that's not Jesus. That's the thing about Jesus I love the most. He is with us in the storms. He's with us in the fires. The moments of panic and the feelings of invulnerability. And he doesn't care if we're in the boat or outside of it or standing on the shore. You see, it turns out that Jesus loves us. That's what the whole crucifixion and resurrection is all about. It's all also why he was willing to leave heaven and come down and get born as one of us and experience what we experience and go through what we experience because that's how much he loves us. Fear not, I am with you, he says. And such a promise stirs something in our soul. And we find ourselves willing to face the storm or the fire or any of the other things that come our way. Now, we don't promise that we're not going to lose sleep. We don't promise that we're not going to be anxious. We don't promise that we're not going to have any doubts. 
But those words, I am with you, says it all. We're not alone no matter what's going on. And by the way, the moment we know we're not alone, we get to reach out. Find somebody else who's going through something and tell them they're not alone. Suddenly it all begins to make a lot more sense. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.